Uh, good morning, Calmace Church. It's so special to see baby dedications um, and baptisms and stuff happening in our church. Um, it means that we are uh, staying young, which is really important to me and to most of us here. And it also means it is even more important that we who are older aim to grow in spiritual maturity. So that when these kids get a little older, um, we are ready to mentor them, to guide them, and to show them what it means to follow Jesus. Um, today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and I just want to read it uh, to you before we dive into it. Uh, you can open your Bibles with me. We're going to be in one chapter, uh, the whole uh, sermon. I also realize it's 1218, which is pretty close to when we usually finish, um, so we'll try to go a little faster today. Um, we're in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 12. I'm going to be reading from the NLT I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Uh, let's pray. Right, dear God, as we open your word and uh, dive into it, um, I pray that you give us wisdom, that you make our hearts uh, malleable so they can be shaped in the way that you want them to be shaped. Um, please be with the words that I say. May they be yours. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was in 10th grade, I had the opportunity to run my first uh, track and field event. All right, I went to a small academy. Uh, we didn't have a Coach Ben uh, coaching us track and field. What we had was just a sign-up sheet. Okay, and what happens is you sign up for an event, there's no practice, and on the day of the track meet, the students who are in the events get on the bus, we drive to the track meet, and we do our thing. All right? Because our school was so small that there was only the main sports, right? And then all the meat types, like badminton, track, all of these things were just, you just go for it. See what happens, right? You never know. And so uh, I was talking to my athletic director, and he told me I should sign up for the 1600 meter, okay? Now, if you don't know what the 1600 meter is, it's four laps around the Olympic track, and if you happen to hail from the United States, Liberia, or Myanmar, okay, that's just under a mile, okay? For everybody else, we know what 1,600 meters is. Um, and now, I'm not a sprinter or any means, but when I was in high school, I did have a motor. Like, I could run for a long time. So when my AD, uh, my athletic director, told me this, I said, not a bad idea. I'll sign up for the 1,600 meter. A track happened at the same time as soccer season, so I felt like I was getting double training because I would go to soccer practice, and at soccer practice, it's a big field, right? You run a lot. I played defense, so I didn't run too much. But every day after practice, I would go home, and I would run a mile, okay? And I thought, like, man, I'm pretty fast at this. I would time myself. I thought I was doing pretty good. And so we get to the date of the track meet. We arrive at the track. I have, like, no idea really what's going on. Our AD is trying to, like, keep us all together. I actually accidentally walked across the finish line, 
like during an event and the picture like snapped and the person in charge was like, hey, like you're not supposed to do that. And I, I, was, I was lost. Um, but I was getting nervous and excited. The adrenaline was flowing through my body. And when it gets time for my track meet, I line up on the course and I'm looking around me and everybody like looks really confident. They have like their school track uh, costumes, jer jerseys, their jerseys, and they look really aerodynamic. Um, I was wearing basketball shorts and like um, a gym shirt with a number on it. And I was like, I can do this though. I can do this. And so we line up uh, along the line. The gun goes off and I start running. And I'm running to win. That's the only way to do it. And so right off the bat, I run a little faster than I'm used to jogging my mile. Okay, so I'm running a little faster, and right off the gate, I'm in first place. Yeah. And I'm running, and I'm going, and I'm feeling really good. I turn the second corner where all of my school is cheering, and they're like, yeah, Mark, you can win this. And I, like, raise my fist, like, here we go. First lap, I'm, like, two meters ahead of everybody. Second lap, I'm feeling real good. I'm like, man, cross country is not all that it's cut out to be. It's actually really easy, all right? I'm like, this is chilling. Bang, two laps down, I'm four meters ahead, okay? Third lap, I'm miles away. Scouts are probably like, wait, what school is he from? Like, who, who is he? Okay, we get to the fourth lap, and I'm running, and we're halfway through the fourth lap, and I start to feel a little pressure behind me, okay? If you've been in any sport or nothing, you know what that feels like. Someone's like chasing you down. I'm like, oh boy, like they're kind of getting close. And so I try to step on the gas a little bit, and there's like not much gas left in the tank, okay? And so I'm running, but I'm like, I can hold on, we're almost at the end. We start approaching the last corner, and a guy passes me. And I'm like, ah, running as fast as I can now, which looks like a slow jog because I'm really tired. And I'm like, it's okay, second's okay. I can do second, that's fine. Another person passes me. I'm running. In just the last corner, I finished the event in eighth place in my heat, okay? Not even in the running when they put all the heats together. Eight out of 12, though, in my heat. So, like, not last place, but pretty good. And the reason why that happened, I think, I really believe, is not because I was out of shape compared to everybody else. It was because I lacked the experience and I lacked the maturity of knowing how to run the race well. I didn't know what I was doing. I get off the court. I mean, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. It's not even a court. I, <laughs> I, I get off the track and I go to my AD and he realizes how little we've been coached, right? But he's like, man, you never just want to be like the first person. You're just slicing the wind for everybody. It's easier for everybody. I was like, nobody told me this. I did not know how to run the race. And Paul in this passage is really invested in showing us how to run the spiritual race of our lives well so that we can grow in spiritual maturity. And I want to highlight three key concepts from this text that I think if we took on into our life, we'd be able to run the race well. 
The first one is this. This is the first key. A spiritually mature person realizes they have not and will not reach perfection. As long as we're in this world. Okay? A spiritually mature person realizes they have not reached perfection. Verse 12 says this, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Um, last week, if you were here, Pastor Darren talked about Paul, who at the beginning of chapter 3 takes a little bit of a, like a bragging session, right? He says, I was a Benjaminite, first in my class, I was a Pharisee, I was the best rule follower where there is. But it counts for nothing. And Paul says, in my experience, that is not worth anything because I'm not even close to reaching perfection. And so for us, the first step for spiritual maturity is to realize I'm not there yet. And it's easy for us in church to think, be like, yeah, pastor, I know I'm not there yet. But if you really think about it, it's a very common human trait to think we've arrived, okay? To think we know it all. I'm going to give you an example that I'm facing on a daily basis. I'm coaching middle school basketball, all right? And everybody in middle school basketball thinks they are a hooper, all right? And so the ones who think they know it all always respond in very specific ways. If they shoot the ball and it air balls, and if you don't know what that means, it means if this is the net, it like goes over here. They always go to me and they're like, oh, I don't know what's going on today. I always make those. And that's like a thing they say, right? When I say, hey, buddy, like, no, we're not going right. We're going left. He's like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I knew that. There's certain things that they say that really grinds my gears as a coach because I'm like, you are not coachable at all. Every time I try to tell you something, you have like a rebuttal, a reason for why you're doing it. And you know what? The more life experience you have, so the older you get, the more skills you get. And that means you know more stuff. So unfortunately, these same responses, you guys have too. A lot of you guys sometimes act like you made it, like you know exactly what's going on, and some of the easiest ways to know you've met someone who has arrived is this. If they are critical, they walk into a room and they know everything that is wrong in the room, every wrong act that somebody does, and you know how they know? Because they've been there, because they've done it. They know the way it's supposed to be. It's the worst kind of person to be. And so, the first key for us is to check ourselves. If we find ourselves being critical, or we find ourselves thinking like, man, I've really arrived. I've really like, become a good person. We're probably one step into falling out of spiritual maturity. Because we are no longer coachable, and we are no longer teachable, and Paul tells us here that a spiritually mature person realizes they have not yet reached perfection. The second key of spiritual maturity is this. A spiritually mature person doesn't look back, but looks 
forward. In verse 13, Paul tells us this, Brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. In an actual foot race, looking backwards is like the ultimate no-no, right? If you're moving one way and you're looking another way, you lose momentum, so you're slow, or you trip on your feet and fall. Worst case scenario is as you're looking this way, someone passes you on the, on the right side. And so the same thing in our life, the same principle applies. We can't be looking behind us. Now this unfortunately happens to me um, quite a bit. I'll have a conversation where I realize I need to make a decision that's very stressful. Um, or I make a decision that was really stressful and I don't know if I made the right decision. And so you know what I do? I do what every good human being does. I sit and I just think about it. And I run every scenario in my head of how it could go, how it could have gone better, what I could have done. Now this person thinks this about me. Now these people are going to have these opinions of me. And I do this, and in looking back, focusing on that, I usually have the worst days ever. That's what, for me, sets off the worst days ever. Have you guys ever been in that situation where you're so focused in the past that it doesn't allow you to move into the future? Some of us are living with regrets from this week, from a year ago, maybe from ages ago. Um, and Paul asks us, don't worry about that. Instead, look ahead. That's the path towards spiritual maturity. Now maybe for you guys, it's not so much looking behind that's tripping you up, it's looking beside that's tripping you up. Which is a very similar thing. You look around you and you start comparing your lives to that of your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your kids' classmates, and, and, and them too. And we start to compare, and we want to make sure that we are just as hardworking as our coworkers, but maybe we work a little bit harder. And we want to make sure that our kids have the same opportunities as our classmates' kids, but maybe just a little bit more. And we start in this endless race. Um, sometimes it's a materialistic race. Sometimes it's a social class race. Sometimes it's just trying to be better than the Joe beside us. And we get so caught up in that, that we are now no longer able to look ahead at the way that God is trying to grow us. And Paul says, look ahead. And just a side note, uh, this is also why Paul in 19, in verse 19, oh sorry, um, in verse 17, says, dear brothers and sisters, pad in your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Um, I used to always think that Paul was just full of himself. How many times and how many letters does Paul say, guys, just be like me? Okay? Be like Christ and then be like me. But it's in reading this text that we're realizing to look ahead not only means to follow Christ, but we want to have peers and mentors and people that can walk ahead of us and we can learn from. I know for me, that has been crucial. And so I'll try to find someone who's a better speaker than me, and I'll ask them to give me feedback. 
I'll try to find someone who's done what I've, I'm trying to figure out and for them to give me advice. In every station of life you're in, whether you're at the top of your job, whether you have three degrees or two degrees, um, whether you're working at TJ Maxx, finding mentors who are ahead of you is a practice in looking forward, looking forward towards Christ. And our second key was that a spiritually mature person doesn't look back, doesn't look beside, but looks forward. And our third key, our third key to be a spiritually mature person is being committed to finishing well. In verse 14, it says this, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize through which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. If you've ever run a race, you'll know that the hardest part is at the end. If you've ever had a project, you'll know the hardest part of finishing it is right at the end. And that's what makes the difference between somebody who's good and somebody who's great in like the business world, in the sports world, in the work world. Finishing well. And all of us, whether we have like big goals or little goals, have this same problem. We're good at starting stuff, but not good at finishing stuff. There's this, actually this concept. Um, it's called decision fatigue. I don't know if you've heard about this, um, but according to, actually according to a lot of people, but I was reading an article by Dr. McLean, who's a psychiatrist. This is how she defines decision fatigue. It's the idea that after making many decisions, your ability to make any more decisions for the day becomes not only hard, but you actually make worse decisions. Have you ever been in that situation? Here's the scenarios, okay? You wake up, you open the fridge, you see uh, bagels or toast, okay? That's one decision down, right? Easy decision, but you have to make it, right? Then you like go to the side door of your fridge and you see uh, cream cheese or raspberry jam, right? There's another decision you have to make. Easy decision, but you have to make it, right? Then you go to your closet, and for me, this is an easy decision. For some of you guys, this might be a hard decision. You open the closet, and you say, what do I wear? And then sometimes to compound this, okay, you put on an outfit, you look in the mirror, and then you make another decision. Wait, do I want to wear this or not? Right? And then you might change. You do that 30 times, right? You get out. You go out, right? Uh, some of you guys who have two cars, you go on the car, you're like, which car do I drive? I don't know. The idea of decision fatigue is this. You make all these little decisions, okay, and there reaches a point when your brain does this to you. It says, no more, Mark. There are no more decisions we can make, and so your brain just wants to shut off. And so, it does that. Uh, Dr. McLean uh, has researched and suggests that each of us makes 35,000 decisions a day. 35,000. And so by the end of that, you can imagine how tired your brain would be. And so, um, actually there's new research coming out that if you have like social media, I don't know if anybody here has like uh, Instagram or like TikTok or spends a lot of time on those things. Um, but uh, every time you're like looking like, do I like this? Do I click it? Do I respond? Those are also decisions we're adding to that plate. It's no wonder that Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 tells us this, 
Seek ye the kingdom of God first. Because if we save that for later, or if we're less intentional about that, guess what? We might run out of bandwidth, we might run out of decision-making power to be able to finish well. And we know that a spiritually mature person finishes well. And so we have three key principles so far. Um, Actually, that's it. Three key principles. And they're pretty simple, but could be pretty hard to do. Um, I'm going to read them to you again. A spiritually mature person realizes that they have not reached perfection. There's still a long ways to go. A spiritually mature person doesn't look backwards, doesn't look beside, but looks forward. And a spiritually mature person is committed to finishing well. Now, if there was, like, one principle to, like, be like, how do I do that? Like, I want the easy version. How do I, like, encapsulate that in one thing? Uh, For Paul and for us, it is to focus on Jesus. And if you have a good senior pastor, and I have a really good senior pastor, okay, you probably hear that a lot. Focus on Jesus. But sometimes you hear that so much that, like, we get a little, what's it called, desensitized to it. And so Paul gives us another analogy that I think is useful here. And this is what he tells us in verse um, 20 of Philippians, I mean, sorry, yeah, Philippians chapter 3. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He asks us to grasp onto this concept alongside focusing focusing on Christ. We must start to know that our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean to have your loyalty, your allegiance, your citizenship somewhere else? I think as a child, probably for most children here, that kind of like is a concept that like goes over your head, okay? For me, like I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't even like really think too much about being Canadian. I hailed from 23 West Point Court Southwest, Calgary, Alberta. That's all I knew, my address. However, as I became a teenager, I started to realize that I was a lot different than most of my classmates. Um, at my school, it was in the early 2000s where uh, most academies in Canada were not diverse yet. And so me and my brother were the only Asian family in a school of all like uh, Caucasian white people. And I remember I used to like kind of feel like weird about the things that made me different. And so I'd ask my parents about it. I'd be like, why am I different than other kids? And they put this like idea in my head. Mark, you're not just Canadian, you're Filipino-Canadian. And it's so interesting, just the idea of thinking that changed my mindset. Because the things that I was kind of embarrassed of, now I was proud of. Changing your allegiance and your loyalty changes your mindset. Uh, When I got older, um, a lot older, uh, I became a husband all right? And now I have new loyalties. I have a home with two cats and a beautiful life. A beautiful wife. (laughs) And the decisions I make because of that are really different, okay? Now, this phrase, let me check with Alina, comes out of my mouth a lot. And that's probably a good thing, right? As soon as the meeting finishes, like, I'm rushing home. I think, like, people at board meeting, like, board meeting ends, I'm already out the door trying to get home. 
hanging out on Sunday with my wife is like my favorite thing to do. That has changed because that is a loyalty for me. Changing your loyalties also changes the way that you behave. Not, so it changes your mindset and it changes the way you behave. Now there's another layer of this for me. Um, I live in the United States of America as a Canadian citizen, okay? And often I see how things are run over here or see how things are over here and it's a little different than how it is back home. Um, and I found that being a citizen of Canada, okay, allows me to not like get so uh, depressed about things over here, okay? Um, I'm not gonna throw I'm not gonna throw America under the bus at all for anything. Um, I do like Canada better in a lot of ways, but being okay, being a citizen of Canada changes the way I respond to news in America. Because sometimes I talk to parents and they get so stressed about stuff, and rightfully so. Things that are happening, right? And you know what I say? Ah, I don't really know. I'm Canadian. <laughs> it changes the way that I respond. And so becoming a citizen of somewhere else, having your loyalties and allegiances somewhere else, it changes your mindset, it changes the way you behave, and it changes the very way you respond when hard times comes at you. And so when we say that phrase, becoming a citizen of heaven, it changes our mindset in how we love and who we love. It changes our acts when it feels like the world is acting in this way, we can choose to act in a different Christ-like way. And when all of the stresses and troubles and tensions of this world get thrown on us, we get to choose how we respond to that. Because where we are is not a permanent thing, right? Because we're citizens of somewhere else. Uh, eight years later, I think, yeah, eight years later, I find myself again on the track and field, on the track and field, field? No, track and field, track, okay. <laughs> this time, okay, this time I am a coach, and I clearly shouldn't be, okay? But it's another, a different small academy, and I am there really driving the kids in the, in the van, okay? I have no other purposes, but we did practice. But I'm a little older now. I'm a little more experienced now. I'm a little more spiritually mature now. And so I realize that sports isn't life. Instead, sports is probably better a teacher of life. And so with my kids, even though we don't really know anything about track and field, we're learning and we're running, okay? Realizing that we got a long ways to go that we're not perfect. We're training, realizing that we can't be looking backwards, thinking about how bad we are or the mistakes we've made. We just gotta look ahead. We gotta train, keep getting better. And we realize no matter what drill we're doing, no matter how we're training, no matter how far behind in the race we are, we need to finish well. And so that season, we go to a couple track meets. We don't do well in any of them. Okay? They asked, I, I was a youth pastor, not a track coach. Okay? We don't do well. And I'm starting to get discouraged because I really like sports and I want my kids to feel accomplished by playing sports. 
right? I want them to have some wins. I want them to feel like they're doing well and we're not doing well. But as uh, the track events um, go on, I see this thing in my kids. And it's funny because I taught it to them, but now I wasn't feeling it. All the principles that we learned in practice, they were latching onto. And so every event, this is what they were telling me after. Man, we came in last, but we're still getting faster. Man, we're really like getting the hang of the baton thing, like passing to each other, because we dropped them a lot. They started realizing that was what was most important wasn't the win, it wasn't the trophy, it wasn't the banner, or the, the breakability of being a winner. It was realizing that they were kids who were improving their bodies, their minds, their spirits, okay, and most of all, that they were a part of something that was greater than just a track team, that they were Christian student athletes trying to become better people. And so I hope for us that in our quest to be spiritually mature, we may choose to look ahead, we may never stop aiming for more, and that we may finish well. Let's pray. Um, God, we want to be able to proudly say we're citizens of your kingdom. Um, sometimes we don't act like it, but we want to. So uh, give us the discipline, give us the spirit, the courage, and the heart um, to live well, to run the race of our lives um, with love and with integrity and in the way that would make you proud. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, dear Jesus, uh, we thank you so much that uh, we get to run this race alongside you. We pray that as we run, may you bless us. Um, may you shine your face on us. Be gracious to us, God. Um, may you give us peace as we go. In your name we pray, amen.